Tonight's reading will come from 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 14. The most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and God said, What do you want? Ask and and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, You showed faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued your faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David. But I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern so great a people as yours? The Lord was pleased with Solomon, with what Solomon had asked for and that he had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or death of your enemies, I will give you what you have asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you ask, what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will compare to you for the rest of your life. If you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. This is the word of the Lord. We didn't change any of that, did we? I had that up there for you to read. You may be seated, sorry. I have that up there for you to be able to read along, but so now you got speed read. Okay, we are in week two of our saint series, where we are taking um, a different saint each week and just kind of looking at some of the people who have gone before us. Um, I love this this month every year because it gives us a chance to remember we're part of a big story. Sometimes we have a tendency to be very short-sighted and and see, you know, we tend to look at the story of God just in our own context and we forget that we're part of a very big, very grand narrative. And so sometimes it's it's fun to look at people from different times and the way they engaged God and and how similar it was in some ways, how different it was in others. And so this is uh this is always healthy um I think to do this, to take this time to do this. Tonight, so last week um we talked about um who did we talk about last week? Brain just went blank. What's that? What? Oh, Lyman Beecher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about Lyman Beecher, um, the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, glad we got Judy to keep us straight. Yeah, actually, I think Amy had it too. Um, talked about Lyman Beecher, the, the dad of, of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and, and this, uh, this preacher who was um, uh, always lived in tension, which I think is why I fell in love with him. He, he started out as kind of a defender of orthodoxy. He was... He was a Presbyterian who was, who was kind of standing against the, the Unitarians of the day, which were different than, than our Unitarians, but um, they were just kind of trying to, to wash out um, uh, theology so that everybody could just get along by really not believing in anything real. And so he was kind of got known as this like standard for orthodoxy, and, and he was getting a little bit popular and then eventually moved out to... Ohio, where suddenly it was the opposite. Back there, they didn't have the kind of Unitarian influence, and he found that he had 
kind of enjoyed the dialogue he had had with the, with the Unitarians and, and how he grew by, by open debate. And so he engaged in a couple debates um, at the college where he was the president and they tried him for heresy because he wasn't like holding the solid line of just because he wanted to, to, to argue and ask some questions. And so he always found himself, uh, I guess, playing devil's advocate in every debate. He always knew how to debate the other side. And, and he kind of came to that conclusion at the end of his life that, that we should hold tight to our theology and that, uh, and that we should defend the things we believe in, while at the same time, uh, there was no reason why people of different theologies couldn't come together to advance the kingdom and social causes. Like there was no reason why they couldn't make the world better together while they discussed their theology and, and debated it and, and really kind of even argued over it. He didn't see any reason why that should actually divide us, why, why we couldn't still do good in the world together. And, uh, and my favorite part about him, which is how we ended last week, was that he raised his kids to be thinkers. Um, the, the biography I read said that Lyman Beecher created more brains than any man in history. He had 13 kids and, uh, and they all grew to either be pastors or presidents of college. Two of his daughters grew to be, um, suffragettes and, um, one actually grew to be an anti-suffragette, which is kind of interesting. But, um, and then, uh, and there's, and his sons were of varying different theological perspectives, but all leaders in their own way, um, because he taught them to think and to, and to, to think deeply, he would get in these debates with them where uh, when the kids would run out of the next debate, he would give them the next, okay, now say this. And they would say it and he's like, okay. And then he would answer back. And every time they got cornered, he would give them their next line so that they would take every debate all the way to its logical end rather than just crushing them and saying, see, I'm right. He would, he would help them think. And so they all grew up to be thinkers and and uh, obviously his one daughter we talked about became Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin and became a, um, a major player in the Underground Railroad and the, and the abolitionist movement. Um, and so um, we talked about what, it, what, it, what if your only job, you know, what if your only real mark on the planet was to raise somebody who was going to make a huge mark on the planet? What if your only job was to encourage somebody who was going to go on and do amazing things? Like the church is full of these kind of supporting saints that, you know, that you, uh, we know we would never be here if they hadn't been there at either praying or encouraging us or blessing us. You may never know their name. You may never have a clue who they are. We talked about, um, um, uh, now I can't remember their name. Remember the, yeah, Moses' parents, Amram, I was, I kept going Ahmed, but Amram and, Amram and Jochebed, right, and none of us knew who they were, myself included, until I bumped into them, what Amram and Jochebed were Moses and Aaron's parents, I was like, what it would be like to go down in history as Moses and Aaron's parents, like, uh, you know, what, what an impact those two had, and most of us don't even know their names, you know, and we talked about Lydia, and this, this lady we know her as the seller of purple, we barely know, you know, who she is. And she's the one who, who housed and bankrolled the first European church. When Paul came over to Philippi, he met her at the river and she invited him into his house. And, and we don't know how much longer later, but when Paul left, he went to Lydia's house to bless the entire church as he left. So she was still housing the whole church. So this lady who we barely know, um, you know, we could almost call her the mother of the European church. She was the very first um, kind of provider and uh, and gave a house to the to the very first church in Europe. So this week we're going a little different direction. This week 
We're talking about Henry Parsons Kroll. Anybody know who that is? If not, you're getting ready to. Um, Henry Parsons Kroll had a really good time with this guy. Bumped into him earlier in the year and just kind of jotted him down like we're going to do him in November because he's fun. Um, Henry Parsons Kroll. His dad, um, Henry Luther Kroll, apparently every kid back a million years had the same name with a different middle name. So most of the books just call him Luther because it makes it a lot easier to keep track of him. But um, Luther was uh, a, a shoe salesman, a shoe man. He made shoes, handmade shoes. And he came to America and, and uh, sets up a little shoe shop that um, did really well. He made great shoes. And uh, and he came in at this this kind of amazing breaking point where technology was was making it easier to make shoes. They came up with some machines that helped and and uh, and so he was doing quite well and actually making good money. He had a partner. They 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 grew their shoe business. Um, actually, their shoe business still exists today. AO Childs, I guess, it's a pretty high end shoe, but it's it's uh, it's his shoe company that he started. Um, and he was he was doing really well. And it seemed like every turn, um, even when he tried to give money away, uh, he would wind up making more money. There's one point where out of a pure act of benevolence during the Civil War, he donated his entire shipment of boots to Union soldiers, thinking, you know, this would just be, I will never see a penny back from this. This will be a great way to give. You know, I'm, I'm giving them to soldiers who are probably going to die in them. So, like, what, what could ever happen? And the shoes fit so well that the soldiers all wrote home about his shoes and everybody wanted his boots because they were the best boots on the planet. His business doubled from giving away so many boots the soldiers, and he just had this, like, it seems like I can't even give money away. It just comes back in. But um, but he lived in a time where it was fairly easy to make money. A lot of people were doing it. And he was very insightful and noticed. He had this theory that ill-gotten money or money that wasn't stewarded well didn't seem to hurt the person who made it. It seemed to hurt the next generation. He felt like all these kids that inherit this ill-gotten money um, turned out bad and, be, and because the, um, they weren't handed the values that it took to make it. And so, um, and so he set up um, uh, this habit, like he was, de- he was determined to teach his children good stewardship because he didn't want to see his money. He knew a lot of people who made great money and it didn't seem to touch them. They were, even if they made it on bad stuff, they seemed happy as can be. And but it was the next generation that hurt. So he did not want to have that happen. So he considered giving all his money away and just making his kids earn their own. But he was determined that he could teach them good stewardship. And so he was kind of thinking through a plan when one year um, he had a nasty cold that uh, didn't go away. And he found out he had TB. And they basically told him, you have tuberculosis. Back then they called it consumption. They were like, you know, you could die any time. You know, probably got a couple of years. And so it kind of put like a like a deadline on his new stewardship plan. So he knew I have to teach my kids stewardship and I have to do it quick and I have to make enough money to provide for them after I die because I know I'm not long for this world. So I want to make enough off my business to provide for them while at the same time, not so much that they just inherit this pile of money and have no values and don't know what to do with it. And so he raised his sons. Um, he actually found out he had TB the year um, Henry, his son, was born. And so uh, Henry was nine when he died. And so at nine years old, so he only had nine years to teach Henry stewardship. But he had also set up a trust whereby the money would kind of be um, eked out to his family 
at about the same pace as if he were earning it, like what he would bring home. And so they were getting it enough to take care of their needs, but not enough to be frivolous with it. But at nine years old, Luther dies. Henry becomes the man of the house. Somebody came up and told him, well, you're the man of the house now. You know, and, and he took that responsibility super heavy, had absolutely no idea what he was going to do with this. And so actually not long after his dad died, his dad did devotions every single night at dinner with the family. And it was usually something to do with stewardship. Every single night he was teaching them about stewardship, how we steward our time, how we steward our resources, how we steward our relationships. Um, and so the day after his dad had passed away, well, actually I think it was probably the day after the funeral when everything's wound down, he set the family down and tried to lead his first devotion. Like, I guess I'm the man of the house now. I have to lead the family devotions. And so at nine years old, he's, and by this time he's got two younger brothers. He's trying to lead devotions for the family. And, and the pressure was a lot for him. So he, uh, at the funeral, he had heard his father's pastor um, talk about his dad's faith. And he had never thought of his dad in that context. He knew his dad was trying to teach them well. We didn't think of his dad as having this vibrant relationship with Jesus. And the pastor talked about the conversations that he and Luther would have and, and how deeply Luther thought and how deeply Luther felt about the Lord. And so young Henry at nine years old uh, asked the pastor if he could make an appointment with him. And he said, sure, come by my office. And so he sat down and started asking him questions about the Lord, like this Lord that his dad knew. Like, tell me about my dad's faith. Tell me what my dad knew. And and, uh, and it turned out to be a really kind of emotional talk. The, the kid kind of had a breakdown. And why'd my dad leave? Where's he going? Am I ever going to see him again? And, it, and, it, and the, the pastor was able to, to lead Henry at nine years old to know the Lord. And Henry looked back for the rest of his life and, and said, and always claimed something major happened in that office. Like he knew he was born again in that office. Never doubted it for a second. His life was, was changed. And so... Henry's uncle came and lived with him, um, which took a lot of pressure off Henry. And, and he it was insightful enough to explain to Henry, we still want you to be a kid, get an education, like you do not have to run the house yet. And so that took a lot of load off him. But they told him he was, he, he was going to go to Yale. That His dad had always wanted to go to college, wasn't able to because he was working. So he was like, you're going to go uh, to Yale. And his dad had actually put back an education fund. And so he knew he was going to, to university eventually. But uh, but until then, he wanted to work. And so he got a job um, as a basically a stock boy at his dad's shoe company. Started on the bottom, didn't want any favors, started working, and was actually climbing the ladder pretty well. He had kind of a mind to, to spot technology, and so he was always kind of upending things. Like, couldn't we do this faster if we did this? Couldn't we do this better if we, if we did this? And they were like, we've done this a million years. You're 10. Settle down and do your job. you know. But, so he was always kind of frustrating people because he was always thinking of better ways to do things. And he was just a kid, so of course no one's going to listen to him. So, um, so he works at, the, at his uh, at his dad's shoe store until one year he meets uh, another kid, and they kind of hit it off. And this kid is is going to um, this prep school for college um, to get prepped to go to school, and uh, and he starts talking it up, and and Henry starts to imagine you know going to um, to a little better school than he was currently going to um, away from home, and. Uh, and so he did. He, uh, uh, the kid talks him into coming and it was called, um, I gotta remember, Stonewell? Stone? Doggone it. That one slipped. Greylock. I have no idea where Stone came from. Whoops. Missed one. So he goes to Greylock, um, prep school. And, uh, the guy who had founded this school, um, took to Henry immediately and Henry loved him. And 
And the kids, uh, this guy had this, this saying that became Henry's mantra where the kids would ask him, how do we do this? What do we do next? Blah, blah, blah. And the guy always said, you wait until you hear from the Lord. You slow down and you wait until you hear from the Lord. So whenever the kids would have a question or a problem, he would say, wait until you hear from the Lord. He told the kids this all the time. And for some reason, this stuck with Henry. Like, I won't do anything until I've waited and heard from the Lord. So this kind of stuck. And he did really well in his schooling. He was taken to it, actually got introduced to athletics for the first time and was loving that. And then one winter, um, before he's even out of what we would call high school, um, he gets a cold that won't go away. So they take him home, they do an investigation, and they find out he's got tuberculosis. He had the same issue that his dad had. And so uh, the doctor tells him, you're not, um, you're not going to be able to go back to school. And, you know, you need to, uh, really the only treatment they could come up with at that time was get to a drier climate, get somewhere where they had a little milder weather, usually out west. They would send him out west. And his doctor told him, you're probably going to have to go out west for 10 to 15 years if you want to be completely cleared of this. Like if you want this to be completely gone, you need a drier climate and you need to, and it's going to take a long time. There is no cure, but we've had some good luck with people who, um, who get into a dry climate uh, for good. And so um, this is uh, 1871, 72 that he gets diagnosed with tuberculosis. And so he comes home and his mom won't let him go back to school. And he knows that Yale is probably not in the, in the books. Oh, one thing I kind of missed, one fun little detail. He, uh, when he asked his mom if he could go to prep school, um, of course she said yes. He sat down to try to figure out how to pay for it. Um, and so he's a, he's a teenager by this point and he, and he asked, you know, this really expensive school, like how much work, and he wants to break down how much work he would have to do. And it was the first time they were like, well, son, your dad left you a, an amazing education fund. It, it would all be paid for, plus Yale. Like there's plenty of money for you to go to school. And his response was, but that's not my money. I couldn't take it from the family. And they were like, no, 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 your dad left this for you. And he was like, well, then maybe it's my dad's money, but I didn't earn it. It's not my money. Um, and so they, in order to get him to take the money, they had to convince him that it was the Lord's money and that the best stewardship of this money would be to go to school. And then he was willing to go um, because his dad had drilled into him how important it is to steward the Lord's resources well. And so uh, he does eventually go to school and he eventually, once he started making money, paid back that school money because he felt so bad for taking that trust money to go to school. But... Um, but the doctor tells him he has to go to go out west as soon as he's old enough to do it. And so he stays home for a little while and, and, and they make the plans. They kind of lay out where he's going to go and, and he's going to go by himself just out west and try to live um, in, a, in a better climate. And just before he left, he hears um, a preacher comes through town and he hears him and it completely blows him away. It was D.L. Moody um, was preaching in, uh, in his town. And so he goes to listen to D.L. Moody, who I guess was kind of a redneck. You know, the, the way the, the biography puts him, you know, they, they put it in dialect and it's a lot of, it's a lot of y'alls and, and, uh, and stuff like that. But, um, D.L. Moody was trying to raise money to go to England to be a missionary. And he, and he preaches this sermon where he's like, I dream big dreams with God because God is a big God. Why would I not dream big dreams? And he's like, so I'm going to go, to, to England and I'm going to save 10,000 souls because to, to, to wish for less when I'm dealing with God would be stupid. He was like, I know that God is a big God and he, and he wants to do big things. And he quoted, um, he quoted this Irish preacher. I'm completely off my notes, so I'm going to have to hunt for it for a second. 
who uh, um, who basically said there is no limit to what God can do for and in and through a man who is wholly consecrated to him. And D.L. Moody said, ever since I heard that, I set my heart on saving 10,000 souls because I believe if I consecrate myself to the Lord, God can do it. And so Moody ends this sermon with, but what about you? What can you do for the Lord? What would God do in and through and with you if you fully consecrated himself to you? At the end of the thing, Moody gives an altar call and Kroll is the first one at the altar. And when they came to me, he was like, no, I've been saved since I'm nine. I just knew I had to be here. And so he, he, he uh, prays this prayer when he's like, God, if you'll, I have, I, there's no way in a million years I would ever be able to preach like Mr. Moody. But if you can, I'm pretty good at business, I think. If you can help me make money, I will give it to your service and I'll keep my name out of it. And he, he prayed this prayer as a pretty young teenager and committed himself to it. And, uh, and it, and it, that moment, he called it his second conversion. That moment stuck with him for the rest of his life. So, Kroll goes out west. And he gets to, uh, um, whoops, I guess I'm missing all kinds of stuff. That's what happens when you get off your notes. <clears throat> Should be back on now. So he goes west. Stays on a ranch for a while. Learns how to ride a horse, um, like western style. Learns how to rope, does all kinds of stuff. And they're, and they, you know, they called him a dude. You know, he, he actually met up with a friend. They called him, you know, they called him dudes from out east, you know, Yankees or whatever. But, uh, they were really impressed with how hard these two kids worked. So he's basically working a ranch, um, all winter long to, uh, to stay out of the, the eastern, you know, wet winters. And so he really enjoys it, really likes working out west and, and, uh, goes home for the summer sees his mom and kind of falls head over heel head over heels for uh this girl named Lily. And so he and Lily kinda of hit it off and and nothing really happens that summer and when it comes fall he's got to go back out west again and this time he goes all the way to California and they explore the deserts. They had no idea how big they were, so they thought they were gonna uh ride across I think it was the Mojave, but I can't remember. And uh, wound up having to camp three nights in the desert, didn't take enough food, barely made it out alive because, you know, and basically, uh, and then they were back for like two days and went out to take a different route that didn't go quite so deep. But by the end of the year, they had mapped most of the desert. They knew where everything was. They were climbing mountains. They were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He learned to hunt. He's super active all the time. Then he would come home for the summers and court Lily. And, uh, and in the course of this, actually this happened in his first year, He's reading the Bible and he was loving the numbers, the repeating numbers that came up all the time. He was fixated on the number seven. And at some point, he reads this, uh, uh, reads this passage that says, uh, it was from Job 15.9, He shall deliver thee six times, yea, in seven there will be no more evil that can touch you. And he took it as a promise from God that he would only have TB for seven years. And, the, the, and he went and told his doctor, and the doctor was, well, don't get your hopes up. It, nobody's ever gotten over it that fast. You know, but you're on a good course and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, I'm going to have TB for six years. By my seventh year, I'm, I'm healed. And, and so he was so convinced that he felt it was okay to court Lily because he didn't want to court her and make a widow out of her until he read this verse. And once he knew he was going to be healed, he started to court Lily. And she responded and they kind of set a loose engagement. So he goes back out west for his third year 
and everything's going amazing. And, he, and this time he climbs a 9,000 foot mountain, he and a buddy with very little gear because they didn't really know what they were doing. And when they came back and told people, nobody believed them, except the only way they could get down without freezing to death was basically just to tie the end of their rope and, and invent their own form of rappelling because they knew they couldn't climb back down in time. And so they had to just rappel, which meant the rope had to stay there. And so when, uh, when nobody in town would believe that they had climbed this mountain, they took them out and showed them their rope. And everybody looked up and they're like, holy cow. So they kind of get this reputation as, as mountaineers almost. But, um, but then at, at this time, um, he gets a letter from Lily that says her mom has forbidden her to marry Henry. Because her mom was widowed young and Henry had tuberculosis and everybody knew that was going to kill you. And so um, she made Lily break off the engagement. And so now Henry's heartbroken. Um, the love of his life, he can't marry her. And so instead of going back out and basically just going wild, he decides it's time to get into business like and, and do something real. And so he goes to South Dakota, uh, actually North Dakota, Fargo, and buys a ranch. Uh, or buys a farm, actually. He buys a little farm in, uh, in uh, uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Works hard, builds his own barn, he hires hands, you know, and he's basically using his college money to do all this. And so the money his dad had set aside to go to college. So he builds this farm and he, and he, he uh, puts his first crop out, harvests his first crop. So it's been a full year. And uh, one day he was riding into town, which is about an hour long drive. And he looks behind him and he sees a funnel cloud coming through the valley. And he had heard about these things. He'd never seen a tornado, but he's heard about them. And so he books it for town. Um, and he kind of watches it long enough to chart its course. And it looks like it's going to come right through the middle of his brand new farm. He's going to lose everything. And so he gets back to town and he prays like, God, did I miss something? Was Because that was the part I, I missed. When he bought this farm, he prayed hard about it. He, he took his, his old teacher's advice and he waited and prayed until he felt like the Lord told him this is the right thing to do. So he he buys this farm, and so he gets back, and he was like, what did I miss, God? How did I do this wrong? I was positive this was from you. And so, storm comes through town. The town even loses some buildings, and he starts riding back, and the entire valley, it's just one farm after the other, is destroyed. Houses gone, barns gone, livestock scattered, fences torn up, everything's gone. And as he turns this corner, where you can see the rest of the way down the valley, he can see the path of the tornado, and it, it just jogged around one farm and he thought he spotted it. And when he got close enough, it was his farm. His farm was the only farm missed. He did not lose a single head of livestock. His barn was standing. Every single hired hand was fine. His house was still standing. Everything was perfect. And somehow the tornado hits every farm except for his. So he, uh, so he rides back into town to basically celebrate the good news and he goes into the saloon and he tells everybody, you're not going to believe it, my farm is still standing, it's perfect. And a real estate guy hears him. And he goes, you want to sell it? And he goes, what are you talking about? He's like, there's some big money guy from back east that came to, to buy a farm. And most of them got destroyed in the storm. If you want to buy it, if you want to sell it, I think he's buying. And so uh, he sold it for a ginormous, unimaginable profit and walked away immediately just... He's like, I got into this for business. I don't want to be a farmer. I want to do business. And so he sold it, took a huge profit, and he took it home. And he was like, told his uncle, everybody freaked out, like, how in the world did you make that much money on his first business venture? Paid back his education fund, and now he's got a big chunk of money that's his own. And he knows he wants to put it immediately back in business. 
And so um, his uncle tells him, you should buy Percheron horses. And uh, which I didn't know much about Percheron horses, but they're these huge stock horses, these huge like working horses, not quite as big as Clydesdales, but they're big. And his uncle's like, they're fairly new in the country. Man, if you put a plow behind these things, they're amazing and blah, blah. And so Henry calls around and he finds a, uh, a big piece of land in South Dakota. And he was like, I think I can raise horses on that. And so he, he buys this, uh, he buys this piece of land and he and his uncle start going all over the country, picking up these horses, buying these horses. And he buys a, a ton of these things. He kind of gets them back little by little into this kind of, this, this stockyard, um, close to where he lived. And now he's got to get them out to his ranch. And there's no, um, trains that are big enough so he has to actually have them kind of retrofit the trains to get his horses out and so he's like hey while you're building new train cars why don't you paint like my name like paint an advertisement on the side this had never been done before and he's like what if you just did like Percheron horses and just advertised he's like i got to take this train all the way through the country to get it to my ranch what if you just put it on there, you know, what we're doing. And so they were like, hey, it's your dime. And so they, they paint a huge advertisement on the side of this this train. And, and by the time he gets to South Dakota and offloads his horses, which he hasn't even really bred them yet. He didn't want to, these were his breeding horses. By the time he gets to South Dakota, he's got more orders than he can fill in five years. Um, the people, just from seeing the trains go by, they would stop the train and what are they doing? They, they would see the horses like, oh my, and everybody immediately upon seeing the horses could imagine their use. And so he gets out there and, uh, and he puts out his first crop and, and really when it was just coming in, somebody came up and was like, dude, you sold these horses before you even got here. If you want to sell, I'm buying. And so he sold the entire horse ranch for, um, another gigantic, profit and so he walks away from horse ranching immediately now pretty much independently wealthy um, uh, of his own right he has um, a lot of money and and he doesn't know what to do with it and so he gets a call from a different uncle and says I've got I just bought this little oat factory and if you want to buy it from me he's like it's 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 hard work and I, I thought it would be easy but there's a lot of competition it would Take a pretty insightful guy. And so he was like, well, let me do some research. And so he starts, um, he starts researching and he, and he found out that, uh, oats were super healthy. This was right when nutritional information was kind of in, like, discovered that you could actually find out how much nutrition something had. So it was all the rage to find out what was in things and whether or not they were good for you. And he found out oats are great for you. He was like, man, it's got protein in it. It's got all these vitamins and minerals. This stuff's actually, and up until then they had been horse food. Nobody had eaten them really, except for like, I guess Germans did. And when they would come over, they would eat them. They would eat oatmeal and people would look at the Germans and think they were like eating like horse. It'd be like us watching somebody eat dog food. Like you are eating horse food. What are you doing? The Germans are like, actually, it's not that bad if you boil it. You know, they, and, uh, and so, Nobody here ate him. And so he gets to thinking, but, and he also thinks everybody's moving to the cities and, and, you know, big farm breakfasts, 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 big farm breakfasts aren't as common anymore. If you could find a way to turn oats into a fairly quick breakfast food, I think it would hit it off in the city. So he, he calls his uncle and he's like, I'll buy that farm. And he bought uh, what was called the Quaker Oats 
mill. He bought Quaker oats. He bought this mill. And he dives in and, uh, and starts pumping out um, this nutritional information on oats to people. And he started driving around looking at how oats were sold. He noticed they were usually sold either in barrels or bags on top on the floor. And they were usually, mice would get into them and other vermins and, and stuff. And, and so it was not very marketable. And so he came up with the idea, if I could stick those in a little cardboard can and put them right on the shelf where a wife could buy a can of these oats and then convince her that it's a good breakfast food, I think I could sell these things. And so he starts um, advertising. And, and in the midst, he, he gets together with a bunch of other mills and he kind of conglomerates. He was like, you know, we're, we're all competing. We all are working the, basically the same piece of land and we're competing against each other. What if we kind of got together and made one big company that kind of took care of all of us? And so uh, they did it under his company name, Quaker Oats, and they, they all kind of came together and everybody was was better taken care of. And then they were competing against much bigger outfits rather than just each other. And But most of this stuff happened in advertising. He he figured out that most advertising of the day was snake oil stuff. Like nobody looked at him because they were just, you know, come buy this magic elixir and blah, blah. And nobody really, and, and all real advertising was done to the grocer. So if you were trying to convince the grocer to buy your oats and then he would try to sell it to his people. And he was like, what if instead of advertising to the grocer, I advertised straight to the people and created an interest by advertising to the people. And then they would come to the grocer and say, hey, why don't you have any Quaker oats? And so he started doing that and he would put an advertisement anywhere. He would paint it on a barn. He would nail signs to posts in the, in the towns. And he rode everywhere just putting up advertisements everywhere. And nobody had really advertised like a quality product before. And so he kind of created like advertising to an extent in the U.S. He put ads in the papers. He, he ran like the very first like if you'll send in 10 box tops, we'll send you a such and such. You know, he ran those kind of things on his boxes. You know, you'll get, um, he, he even did a, he found a really cheap, you could build your own tube radio. And so they would send you radio parts every like 20 box tops you would send in. They'd send you the first tube. And then, and he found out that they were basically spending, you know, 10 times as much by the time they got their radio and the money was coming to him. Like they, if they had bought the radio the way he did, they could have done it for basically the price of one thing of oatmeal. It was super cheap. But, um, but so he came up with all these crazy ideas. And then the second thing he did is he felt the Lord lead him um, to call an old friend um, from school. This guy that he'd known forever is kind of like a second cousin type character. And this guy was... Uh, was kind of an engineering, you know, marvel. Like he built things as a kid. And, uh, and Henry thought, I bet he could like look at our outfit and really um, make it efficient. And so he calls this guy, Jim Andrews was his name, and he brings him in. And for the rest of his business, he and Jim ran the operation. Jim handled the machinery, handled the people, handled the personnel, made sure that the, the mill was at peak capacity, and Henry handled the advertising and the business and the and the vision casting. And and he always said, I, I never would have made a penny on oats if I hadn't had Jim basically running the show for me. Um, and he felt like God was the one who told him to to call Jim. And, and the craziest thing was, back then people didn't say that kind of stuff in business. You know, people would say, you know, they would ask him questions about how did you make money, and he would just say right out, well, God told me to buy a 
uh, a farm and I did and I sold it for a lot of money and then God told me to, to buy a ranch and so I did and, and uh, made a lot of money on that too and then God told me to buy this, this and apparently people didn't do that in business back then and so he was kind of known as an eccentric because he didn't hesitate to tell people that God blessed his business and God was the reason he was successful. And so in the midst of this, he goes home um, and uh, on his, the beginning of his seventh year, he walks into the doctor and basically does a series of jumping jacks and runs around and does stuff. And he's like, listen to my chest, I'm healed. And the doctor declared him healthy and basically said it. You, I've, we've never seen anybody get over tuberculosis that fast, but you're healthy. And so he immediately goes about convincing Lily's mom to let him get married. And, uh, and he's like, I'm healthy now. I'm not going to die. Um, look at me go. And so he does marry Lily um, and uh, brought her into the Quaker Road thing. And unfortunately, she wound up getting sick from the flu and died um, like a year or two later. Like they weren't married very long, which was uh, a bizarre Terrible irony. So, um, so he winds up basically becoming known as this advertising guru, and people started to copy him. He he put stuff on trains, billboards, newspapers, posters, ran all the giveaways, and uh, and really, once Lily died, he threw himself into his business full force and and uh, grew it. He conglomerated more mills in and and grew the company. There was a lot of internal turmoil that was kind of amazing the way he navigated it. And I don't really have time to get into that. It's more of a business lecture than anything else. But super cool the way that the way that God uh, kind of directed him to do things. Like there was times when everything would logically seem like it would go one way and it would go against his conscience. And he would go, you know what, I just don't feel good about it. There was one point when a bunch of people wanted to make a monopoly and uh, and he didn't feel good about it. He didn't feel good that that it was right to price fix and, and do that to his customers. He respected his customers, so he, he turned that down. And then a couple of years later, there was another huge company that was going under, and there was hundreds of jobs that were going to be lost if that company went under. And so he bought it because he didn't want those, those people to lose their jobs, and the government sued him for trying to create a monopoly. Which you know, And he, he wound up winning the case, and so many people came to his defense and were like, this guy is a job creator, like he was trying to save people's jobs. So many people came to his defense that he wound up getting off, that the company got off the charges and, and everything was good. But he, uh, in the midst of this, he meets um, his second wife, uh, Susan, and falls madly in love again. And Susan, and Susan was different. She was a little more active. She kind of joined him in the business and loved, you know, hearing about the business and being uh, involved in it, and so they they kind of have a whirlwind court win, uh, uh, courtship and and end up getting married and uh, and through him she meets that he meets this uh, this guy Frank Drury and this is one of the things where he turned out to be like his dad Frank Drury had this little had a patent on this little tin stove that you would fill with an oil or something and and they had like lanterns, kerosene lanterns, but nobody ever tried to cook with it. And so he found a way to to divert the heat so you could cook with these little stoves. He was like, you can take them anywhere. You can take them in a wagon. You can blah, blah, blah. And, and he was like, and it's, I feel like it's a cool idea, but I don't know what to do with it. And kind of on a whim was kind of like, you know, I like this kid. You know, he's my he's my new wife's, you know, childhood friend. What, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll give him some money and, and kind of let him do his thing. And so he partners with him on these little stoves, which wound up making him almost as much as Quaker Oats. Um, 
he, they, they do these stoves and, uh, and they kind of hit it off. They were doing really well. They were producing them. But it happened at a time when uh, he was in town one day and met uh, the Vanderbilts. And in, in having a conversation with the Vanderbilts, found out that the way they, would, they were producing oil or refining it at the day, it, it was leaving barrels and barrels and barrels of kerosene. They had lakes of kerosene that was coming off of this oil that was being refined. And they had no, nothing to do with it. They had no, there was like, we already have more kerosene than we could ever burn in kerosene lanterns from here to eternity. Like, and we don't know what to do with this stuff. And he goes, you know, I've got these little stoves. And he was like, and I think they would burn just great on kerosene. And so they wind up striking up a, a partnership with the Vanderbilts where uh, the Vanderbilts loved the stoves so much but they looked at his operation. They were like, you'll never sell enough stoves. And so the Vanderbilts came and said, what if we committed 3,000 salesmen to selling your stoves? We will hire 3,000 salesmen that are going to do nothing but sell your stoves as long as your stoves use only our kerosene. And, uh, and so the Vanderbilts basically created their own market for, for kerosene for these stoves and sold millions of the, they were called the perfection stove. It was this little personal stove and they wound up having different sizes and and in a day when there wasn't really electricity or piped gas um, they were perfect and people could use them anywhere and so people used kerosene stoves to heat to cook their food for a long time and they were all um, Henry Kroll's kerosene stoves and so it was that and that's the way most of his business ventures went like he went into it a little bit casually um, and wound up making a ton of money on the stuff um, but his conscience started to get to him because he always thought back to that sermon by D.L. Moody. What can God do with one man, with one man who is wholly consecrated to him? And by this point, by the point um, when he, uh, Quaker Oats has now settled all the internal turmoil. He's the sole president. Everything's uh, perfect there. It's a well-oiled machine. He's making a ton of money on the stoves. For the most part, he's kind of coasting now. And at this point, he started tithing about 70% of his income because he didn't really need much of it anymore. And so he's, but he still didn't feel like that was enough. He didn't feel like um, he was really doing much in, in, the, in the sense of what he felt God lay on his heart when he heard D.L. Moody preach. And so he commits himself uh, to being more faithful to church first. And so he starts going to church and, and he gets there and he was... Uh, I guess it was really common for him to be seen witnessing to people after church, you know, people who had come, but he wasn't convinced they were saved yet. And so he would witness to them in the parking lot and, and just outside church, you know, and, and trying to win souls. And, the, and the, the pastor loves his zeal so much that he asked him if he could have a Bible study in his house. They knew he had a real nice big house and he's like, what if we had a Bible study at your house? And so he was like, that's not necessarily what I had in mind to serve God, but you know, I got no reason to say no. And so he said yes. So he has this, has this Bible study in his house. And they, instead of the, the preacher coming, he sends this kind of young um, training pastor who is this guy that had a ton of zeal. And he comes in and he leads this amazing Bible study that's, that's growing. And the process, Susan, who had kind of been a casual Christian, um, gets saved and like radically on fire, crazy saved. And so... Um, they kind of become these nutty crusaders um, who went around trying to save everybody. Like uh, the, the biography I read had quotes from a bunch of 
high-end businessmen, like Vanderbilt-level businessmen, who can all tell their story about the time Henry Kroll tried to save them. Like, he, everybody he knew, every business meeting he went into, he would talk about Jesus. And he would, do you know Jesus? And he would, he would immediately try and spin, you know, the conversation to talk about Jesus. And, and, uh, and so Susan started throwing parties, like these kind of debutante, big, expensive parties, just to get people in the house so Henry could witness to them, just to, to get them in the house so he could, you know, just kind of flit around the room witnessing to people, trying to get people to believe in Jesus. And so this kind of becomes the way they live for a while. And uh, in the midst of this, they meet a, a prostitute. Um, Henry and Susan meet a prostitute. And they find out that she's um, was basically down on her luck and some brothel took her in, but pretty much abuse her and, and, and nothing she earns goes to her. And it was the, the standard story. And it infuriates him so much that he starts rounding up other kind of powerful business people in the town and he starts a council that started as the Council of Five and grew to the Council of Fifteen is what they call it. And their whole purpose was to clean up Chicago. Like that was what they were going to do. And so they start putting the, the screws to the mayor and one of the people in the town ran a newspaper, a big newspaper, one of the people on the Council of Fifteen. And so every time they would go to the mayor and say, you know, um, we need to get a law passed to, to forbid prostitution on this street. It's real bad and we need to clean up this street. The mayor said, well, I, because most of the officials were being paid by a lot of this under the table. They would run a story about him. The guy would run some scathing story about the mayor. And the mayor would be like, fine, we'll do it. We'll clean up this street. And so they're, uh, they're basically putting pressure on everybody to start cleaning up um, Chicago from what he called the, the blight of sin. Um, and so... He, uh, and so this kind of gets to him and he's, and he's liking feeling like something real has happened. So he kind of becomes a bit of a, like an activist almost to, to clean up, um, the town. And he feels, and, and all along this kind of, this mantra is rolling through his head. What can one man do? Like what can one man who's fully consecrated and throws himself fully into the gospel do to change the world? And so, uh, and so he's, uh, uh, so he's cleaning up the town. He's got the Council of Fifteen. It's going. He, and he starts kind of funding missionaries. And he kind of had this grueling, because his dad had drilled him so hard on stewardship, he was terrified to just give money out because he had no idea what the person was going to do with it. If it was going to, if it was going to wind up hurting them more than helping them. Um, he knew he had enough that if he gave away ten grand, he wouldn't feel it. But it could totally change and alter and maybe even ruin this other people's, person's life. And so he had this like grueling application process. He gave away millions and millions of dollars, but had this grueling application process to make sure that the people that were getting it needed it and, and knew what to do with it. And they had a good understanding of stewardship. And, and he's doing all this and, and still doesn't really feel complete um, until Dwight Moody dies. D.L. Moody dies. And so he goes to D.L. Moody's... Um, uh, seminary that D.L. Moody had started for training um, young pastors and evangelists um, in the gospel, and, and it was free to them to go. And so uh, he went and sat down with the board and found out that the, the thing was in a shambles. It was a mess, and it wasn't going to last long. Basically, they were living on D.L. Moody's big personality. D.L. Moody knew how to ask for money, and he had no problems doing it, and he... he uh, he would ask his, his big friends for money, and that's what had kept 
the Moody Bible Institute open. And so Kroll sits down in a real blunt way is like, you guys have the way I see it, maybe six months and you're done. Um, and if you want to last longer than this, you have to start running this thing like a business. And they were all like, oh, this isn't a business, this is a ministry. And he's like, well, it's going to be a dead ministry if you don't start to run it like a business. And so he starts to set up, he, he creates a publishing um, house within the thing so that they could actually sell books and make money off the books um, to, to fund the Bible school. And he does a bunch of other stuff, set up some trusts, and, and basically turns Bi- 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 the Moody Bible Institute into a viable uh, business that can stand on its own. And so they ask him to be on the board and basically let him run the, the Moody Bible Institute. And so he was, he was actually on the board for 40 years. Once a week on Tuesday nights, he would walk the, like six blocks from his house to the, to the, to Moody Bible Institute to go to board meetings. Never missed a board meeting until, uh, all the way till he died at 89. He was at every single board meeting every single Tuesday night, um, for 40 years helping run the Moody Bible Institute. And, uh, and at, at the early stages, he funded a lot of the stuff. They had to build a new administrative building. Um, he gave over half the money to fund the administrative building. They wanted to put his name on it. But, um, but he said, I, I'm afraid I made a promise when I was young that if God would give me money, I would keep my name out of it. So you'll have to put somebody else's name on it. And so they wound up putting the second biggest donor's name on the administrative building because he had made a, a vow to God that if God would let him make money, he'd make sure his name stayed out of it which is probably why none of us knew that guy's name when he first popped up. He saw to it that that was the way it would work, that his name would stay out of stuff. So he was uh, basically um, was responsible for keeping the Moody Bible Institute alive and, and a thing. And he was also, uh, he was like I said, his whole life he had always been fascinated with the new technology and whatever was coming out and the newfangled thing. And and he loved radios from the little ones he would build so that you could talk to somebody, you know, 20 feet away that you probably could have shouted at and got the same thing. But he loved the technology of it. They were sending sounds over the air. And so he'd always kind of followed it. And radio stations were becoming a thing. And so he felt like he had heard one before. He had heard a, a, a radio and heard it picking up something from a long ways away. And so he, uh, he felt like this was the perfect way to get the gospel out. And so he started, I forget what it was called, like WMBA. I don't know what it stood for, but WMBA was, was one of the uh, first, um, I think it was the fourth, the fourth um, radio station in America. Um, and it was, it was by the Moody Bible Institute, and it just pumped preachers and speakers and teachers um, all day. So from basically the inception of public radio, the Moody Bible Institute was there preaching the gospel to people because, um, and he he funded that because everybody thought there was that there were people who were like, no, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. We can't have the gospel going through the air. That would be that would be wrong. And there was so there were people that didn't want the gospel being preached over radios because um, of that verse, and 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 he didn't see it that way. And so he he pushed for it, and it became a huge thing, and it became. It, it actually advanced and spread the Moody Bible Institute almost everywhere and made it kind of a household name. But um, but he came, uh, let's see, at 89, um, he actually walked to a board meeting, um, walked the six blocks to a board meeting, gave this big long speech about how the Moody Bible Institute should always... Um, 
he was he was real against what he called modernization that that they're modernized they're trying to modernize the gospel and modernize Christianity and and the Moody Bible Institute should always combat modernization and we need to stick with the the pure simplicity of the gospel and he he gives it they said it was about a 45 minute like speech to the board about the value of making sure they stayed gospel centered um, and then he walked downstairs walked to the train got on the train to go. Uh, uh, across town, and by the time he got there, he had died in his train seat at 89 years old, still going to work every single day, um, still serving on the board of Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and by then he had set up a, a, a trust for his money to see to it, um, the book actually goes into the way they had to set it up, to see to it that all of his money that was donated to ministries and stuff went to ministries that were truly committed to to advancing the gospel. And he had like a criteria they had to meet in order to get any of his money and wound up donating most of his money. Um, most people believe that um, that uh, Carnegie and Vanderbilt, when they started giving their money away late in their life, it was actually Kroll that had inspired them to do that, that, uh, that they were both, you know, dumbfounded at this guy who was just stocked up all this money just to give it all away. And so at the end of their life, they, and then they started trying to one-up each other, who could give more. But um, they, they both, uh, most people believe that Kroll was the reason they did that. So that's Henry Kroll. And, uh, and I was thinking, um, and the, one of the reasons I, I picked this guy um, was, I don't know, it wasn't long ago. I was thinking about David and Solomon, and I don't know why, uh, but I was kind of going back and forth, looking at the differences in these two guys. And we have a tendency to um, maybe over-spiritualize characters in the Bible sometimes. Because you've got David, who is obviously madly in love with God. You know, when you read some of the Psalms and you read this guy pour out his heart before God, this guy is obviously, in a very emotional and spiritual way, passionate about the Lord. And even when he would screw up, he repented passionately like this you can see David's relationship with God and most of what he does and says and writes and then you got Solomon and we kind of have this tendency um, to assume because Solomon had wisdom that he was just as kind of spiritually engaged as David but in our scripture reading tonight when you think about it he didn't really ask um, God for for anything spiritual I mean he just said I want the wisdom to run things well and God was impressed with that question. It wasn't, I want to write amazing, you know, scripture that's going to be around. I want to inspire generations. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to save 10,000 souls like D.L. Moody. He was just like, I want the wisdom to run things well. I want to do things right. He said, give me an understanding heart that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong for who by himself is able to govern this great people. Uh, for some reason, more than ever, I was overwhelmed at how practical Solomon was. Just, and, and, and that God's response to this really practical question, I just want to do things well. Like, not like a deep, crazy, you know, I, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm more the David type. I'm more like, let me burn out for you, God, I'm in, uh, you know, Big radical, you know, crazy, you know, deep worship. And for some reason it struck me for the first time that Solomon was so down to earth. Like, I just want to do what I do well. You've put me in this position. 
give me the wisdom to do it well. And, and I think my favorite thing about this passage was how impressed God was with that question. He didn't say, God, I want to know you. I want to be close to you. Like all the things we, we sing about. You know, I want, to, I want to touch your heart. I want, to, I want my heart to be broken by the things that break your heart. And blah, blah. You know, we, we have this language that's so um, spiritual. And I'm not, none of that is bad. But I love that Solomon's like, just help me do things well. Just help me know wisdom so I can do my job the way I'm supposed to do my job. Um, you've called me to be king. I want to be a good king. I want to know right from wrong. I want to run it well. I want to do the right thing. And I felt like Kroll was one of those people. Like he was, he was, you know, I want to, I know I can never preach like Moody, but I think I can make money. And if you'll help me, I'll make money and I'll impact the kingdom that way. And I thought it was, uh, and so I, I remember a while ago being impressed by this line that, you know, the same uh, the somebody was uh, struggling with her teenager, and they were like, "I just don't feel like God has given me the gifts, you know, like, to deal with this teenager. Like, I, I don't even feel equipped for this." And uh, the, there were several of us in there. Somebody said that that same anointing that helped you change diapers and and teach them not to stick their finger in an outlet is that same anointing God has given you to parent them through the teen years. Like, it, it's okay to go to God and say, I just need to know how to do this job well. How do I raise my kids well? How do I, you know, whatever is, how do I work on cars well? How do I do this in a way that is productive and, and, and quality and at the same time that I can impact your kingdom with it? You know, and so not everybody's going to be a D.L. Moody and be able to stand up and reach 10,000 souls, but everybody can impact the kingdom. I believe that with all my heart. And I, I believe if, if, if we go into whatever it is we do, and we say, God, I want to be wholly consecrated to you in this thing. I want to be wholly consecrated to you in this thing that I want to do. And, and I, no, I can't preach. No, I can't do this. No, I, I'll never be this or that, but I can do this well. And if, and, if, and if you'll find a way, I'll do this well to impact your kingdom. Like this is, I think that's all Kroll did. He said, I know how to make money. And I think if, God, if you'll, if you'll help me, I'll make money for you. And, and I don't think that just works in money. I think that works in everything. I think God is a very practical God and wants to help us in practical things. So as we go to the table tonight, maybe you just scan your heart and say, what about, what, what if I gave you the same challenge Moody gave. What about you? I know the big dream I want to dream for God, the, the big thing I want to do. What about you? If you consecrated yourself for God, what does God want to do with you? Kroll answered that exact question as a, as a young teenager. Um, and so maybe as we come to the table, we just wrestle with it. What about me? What does God want to do with me?